The Batman. 1989. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Luckadaw Podcast. This is your host, Elias Roush. This podcast is, uh, what was it? Hey everybody, welcome back to the Luckadaw Podcast. This is your host, Elias Roush. This podcast is sponsored by EliasRoushMedia.com. Photo, video, digital media production. Today we're discussing Batman. Batman is a 1989 American superhero film based on the DC Comics character of the same name. Produced by John Peters and Peter Gruber, it is the first installment of Warner Brothers' initial Batman film series. The film was directed by Tim Burton and stars Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton, Kim Basinger, Rupert Wall, Pat Hingle, uh, Billy D. Williams, Michael Goh, and uh, Jack Palance. The film takes place early in the title character's war on the crime, on crime and depicts his conflict with the Joker. It is directed by, unmistakably, Tim Burton, screenplay by Sam Hamm, uh, Warren Sacron, and story by Sam Hamm. Uh, is it Hamm or Hom? I'm not sure. So based on a character's... Uh, created by Bob Kane, uh, produced by John Peters, Peter Gruber, and we announced everyone who was starring, cinematography, Roger Pratt, edited by Ray Lovejoy, music by Danny Elfman, unmistakably Danny Elfman, um, distributed by Warner Brothers, released uh, June 19th, 1989. Runtime of 126 minutes, a little over two hours. Budget between 35 and 48 million dollars. I couldn't even think. I could not even fathom that at this point. Um, how low that is in comparison to, you know, uh, today's 200 million dollar movies and stuff like that. I know there's inflation and whatnot, but still. Uh, th- I think that would probably only still be like a $60 million movie at the most if you counted inflation. Um, box office, it made $411 million. So on a less than $50 million budget, that is an amazing return. So obviously they had to do more. And if you are a true comic books fan and a true Batman fan, you know that there is more after this. Um you know, there's Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, um, Batman and Robin, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises. It just keeps going on and on and on. And that's not even including the animated series, um, as well as the animated uh, straight-to-DVD movies. That some of them pretty good, some of them not so good. You got, like, The Killing Joke, you got Mask of the Phantasm, you got a lot of different options. Um, so... I've went back and watched all of the 90s and 89 Batman uh, just to kind of revise myself and what was going on uh, in in the Batworld, you know, I guess. Um, I'm not much of a comic book reader, and uh, I haven't seen too much of the, te- the, the television show. So 
basically all my knowledge of Batman comes from just uh, watching it over the years, kind of growing up a little bit watching the Justice League. Obviously, I was just like everyone else enthralled with the Christopher Nolan Batmans. The Dark Knight is on another level of prestige uh movie that can't be touched at this point um nothing's even come close um but was saying that i kind of wanted to go back and see what really kicked it off batman 89 um sitting at two hours six minutes action adventure it the the film has movie stars before i was really 100 percent uh under even understood what a movie star was Michael Keaton, I believe he had just uh, finished up Beetlejuice at this point, and he was going to play Batman. Um, and a lot of people were unsure about his, uh, you know, ability to be a comedian and play such a dark character as well. Let me confirm that that was his next role. Let me see what what did he do before? Um, yeah, he he was Beetlejuice. Okay, so. Yeah, he went from Mr. Mom in 83 to Gung-Ho in 86 to She's Having the Baby and Beetlejuice and Clean and Sober in 88 to being Batman in 89. Um, and then eventually returning to be uh, in Batman Returns in 1992. So the most interesting thing I've, I find about this uh, series is the formula that they did get this kind of campy, over-the-top style, almost overly sexualized, uh, hyper-realized Batman, in a way. Like, when you go into this, you don't go into it thinking it's uh, fucking a Christopher Nolan gritty, gritty take, gritty drama take. Like, this is supposed to be campy, in a little bit ridiculous, and I think it, that's where the Tim Burton-esque feel comes from. But you also have the the care of Danny Elfman to come in and give some of the most fascinating uh, scores to superhero cinema that we had even heard up to this point. Even even past that point, I think Danny Elfman should be praised as you know one of the all-time great. Um, superhero score creators because uh or composers because i mean off the top of my head what is that spider-man and batman this dude's done um i i can't think of the other ones that he's done uh that were revolutionary but on those two alone uh were amazing let me see what else he's got you know charlie and the chocolate factory um yeah the spider-man one and two he's uh he's done an immense amount of work. What was it? He wrote music for Men in Black, uh, even Fifty Shades of Grey. That's not really my style, but still, that's pretty pretty notable. Um, yeah, the the dude has worked a lot with uh, Tim Tim Burton as well. Until they, I think they got into uh, argument of some sort. Was it in Spider Man two or three that? Or was it? I might be getting him confused with Ray, uh, uh, Danny Elfman, and Sam Raimi. I think that's actually who, who actually got in a fight, not not Tim Burton. Take what I say with a grain of salt. Everything I'm just kind of doing off the top of my head. But anyways, um, 
let's kind of get into the nitty-gritty a little bit of it. Let me see if there's anything else we want to discuss. After Burton was hired as a director in 1986, Steve Englehart and Julia Hickman wrote film treatments before Sam Hamm wrote the first screenplay for Batman, but was not greenlit until after the success of Burton's Beetlejuice in 1988. The tone and themes of the film were partly influenced by Alan Moore's Brian Bowling's The Killing Joke and Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. Um, the film primarily adapts and diverts the Red Hood origin story for the Joker, um, having Batman inadvertently causing, this is kind of a little bit of the synopsis, causing gangster Jack Naper to fall into Axis chemical acid, triggering his transformation into the psychopathic Joker. So that's kind of the, the lead into the movie. Um, Numerous A-list actors were considered for the role of Batman before Keaton was cast. Keaton's casting was controversial since by 1988 he had been typecast as a comedic actor. Um, and many observers doubted he could play uh, portray a serious role. And I think that that's kind of a stigma of a lot of comedic actors that they can't just... They can only do comedy. There's a lot of actors that have been able to transfer their comedic abilities into uh, dramatic abilities. At Galifianakis, uh, Adam Sandler, uh, Nicholas, sorry, Nicholson accepted the role of the Joker under strict conditions that dictated top billing. A portion of the film's earnings, including associated merchandise with his own shooting schedule. The dude got out right. I think he got like a major percentage of what was going on. Um, the merchandising deals, like he knew exactly what he was doing. By this point, he said, the only way I'm playing the Joker is if you pay me an ass ton of money for the rest of my life. And he absolutely did it. Um and so filming took place at Pinewood Studios from 1988 to January 1989. The budget escalated between 30 and $48 million, while the Writers Guild of America forced Hom to drop out in 1988. Uh, the Warren Sochran did rewrites with uh, additional uncredited draft tones by Charles McGowan and Jonathan Gims. Gims. Batman was both critically and financially successful, earning over $400 million in the box office, and it's the fifth highest grossing film in the history at the time of its release. The film had received several Saturn Awards nominations and a Golden Globe nomination for Nicholson's performance and the, won the Academy Award for Best Art Direction. It was inspired the equally success... Sorry, it also inspired the equally successful Batman the Animated Series, paving the way for the DC Animated Universe and has influenced Hollywood's modern marketing and developed techniques of the superhero film genre. The film was followed by three sequels, Batman Returns 92, with both Burton and Keaton returning. Um, Batman Forever, which had... Batman Forever 95, which had Val Kilmer as Batman, and... Batman and Robin 97, which had Clooney in the title role. And kind of just off the top of my head, um, I'd say that each one of them have a totally different type of Batman in each one of the movies. The first two obviously have the uh, the Keaton of it all, but the cast around, it, around them changes. Um, I'm actually a little bit more of a Batman Returns guy than, a, than the standard Batman 89 guy. Um, 
I just think what Danny DeVito is doing there and Christopher Walken is just, it's, it's amazing. You know, uh, I, I remember that movie more, I guess, because of the stylistic flares of that movie. Um, but yeah, Keaton versus Kilmer versus Clooney versus Bale. What's, you know, what's the difference in them all? The biggest thing I can notice is how much they enjoy being Bruce Wayne. I think that's, you know, are they enjoying being a billionaire? Are they smiling? Or, you know, how much of a glebe or how much of, uh, how much are they enjoying being Bruce Wayne? I think you can kind of navigate to how mo- how depressed your Batman's going to be. So I think on a scale of the ones I like the most, you want to have a nice balanced Batman. So I'm not saying that I dislike Kilmer at all, but I do feel like he's probably the darkest. Um, Keaton is right there too, but I still feel like he has still a little bit more charisma, just a, just a little bit more charisma. Uh, Bale is kind of in between there, but he's not like... Um, for, for me, he doesn't have that, that charisma factor like Keaton does. Um, but... He, he, he kind of comes off as a little bit more tired, um, uh, like a tired Bruce Wayne in, in his. And um, then you have Clooney, who is just loving being a bachelor <laughs> and loving being Batman and loving the bat nips. Um, so I, I just noticed that Clooney, going back and rewatching them all, he's he's laughing, he's smiling, he's not really portraying a dark, darker uh, Bruce Wayne. And I know that there's going to be a lot of fans out there that are going to say, well, you're actually messing some of them up. This is this, you know, this is this is the detail. This is this detail. Yes, I'm not going to be 100% with the details. But I think the biggest difference in them is how much they enjoy being Bruce Wayne. And and from what I could tell, uh, George Clooney was just playing George Clooney. He was He enjoyed being the character. Um, nothing wrong with that, but I, I just noticed that from watching it. Um, and each one kind of goes in a different level of camp. The first one has A-list actors with the Tim Burton camp. Um, and the writing is almost A1. I think the second one is where they perfect it. They bring in, uh, the Catwoman of it all with, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, and I think she just lights up the screen to another degree that make that movie just slightly more better for me and slightly more enjoyable to watch and memorable than the first one. Even thinking about it now, I, I can only think about Batman Returns because of all of the, the Catwoman scenes and all of the, the crazy penguin scenes. It's just like, it's so hyper campy and sexualized and just weird and kind of feels wrong as how is this for kids? How are they selling toys for kids in this? It, 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 it was just ridiculous. And then as this franchise continues to go on um, with the Val Kilmer and the third movie, that one felt like definitely the most the the, the kind of the, the darkest, and then the the uh, fourth one with uh, what is it Batman? Well, yeah, Batman Forever kind of 
was it Batman Forever? It, it, Batman Forever, they kind of get into the more ridiculousness of it. Sorry, I feel like there is the darkest parts of the the franchises are definitely between two and three, Forever, and um, Returns, in my opinion, kind of around there, and that's when we start to get into the more ridiculous, uh, kind of CG animated. Uh, what I think we have the Jim Carrey acting a fucking fool in this. And isn't that when Joel Schumacher, Schumacher starts taking over the directing realms? Yeah, once Joel takes over uh, in the third Batman Forever, it starts to get weird in a way that kind of feels like it's surrounding more of the sets and the stylistic flair of it. And we're taking away from the campiness of it all and kind of turning it into more like jokes and puns and the freeze of it all you know what killed the uh, i'm not even gonna try to do an, <laughs> an arnold impersonation right now but basically once joel schumacher schumacher hopped onto the last two of the 90s batmans um that's when things got just fucking weird and off the rails and it felt like they gave him the keys to Tim Burton's castle, but they didn't give him all of the right. Uh, they didn't tell him how to play with the toys right, and so it, it all just felt, you know, didn't help. Didn't tell him to, how to make the story cohesive and and feel uh, like it went from beginning to end. Like I, I definitely felt like we went from point to point to point. So. Um, that's just kind of a roundabout way of saying how the spiraling of the Batman franchise has happened. Um, you know, the, the, the villains get even more ridiculous from the Arnold Schwarzenegger being Mr. Freeze. And then you got, uh, uh, Uma Thurman being, uh, Poison Ivy and, each individually, I feel like, could probably work, but there's so much crammed in those last few movies of the franchise that it just it just is overwhelming. So, um, with saying all that, where the hell is Batman 89? Okay, so, with saying that, Batman 89, um, yeah, let's hop into the spoilers real quick. We're going to discuss the plot of the film and uh, a little bit more in detail i would give this an eight out of ten honestly i'm gonna give the first two batmans eights out of tens and then the last two probably like a seven and a six or something like that but um yeah i would say that this is is well up there we're getting a a plus um you know, A plus material from Bruce Wayne. And I will say there is a little bit of a critique that it's the villains movies of the first, you know, the Keaton movies. He's not in it a whole ton, uh, for the, especially the second one. Um, can't really complain about that because when he's on there, he's so good. So I feel like less is more in some of these cases. So anyways, let's hop into the plot of Batman 89. Be sure to go to patreon.com slash podcast to listen to this full podcast early. 
can also go to luckydollpodcast.com for all social media. Here's the plot. As Gotham City approaches its bicentennial Mayor Borg, orders District Attorney Harvey Dent and Police Commissioner Gordon, which the police, Pat, uh, what's his name? Pat some Hinkle or whatever his name is in this. Absolutely, he's a joke of a Commissioner Gordon. I'm just going to say that now. Um, police Commissioner Gordon to make the city safer by incarcerating mob boss Carl Grissom. Meanwhile, reporter Alexander Knox and photojournalist Vicky Vale investigate sightings of a masked vigilante called Batman who is targeting the city's criminals. Both attend a fundraiser hosted by billionaire industrialist Bruce Wayne, who is secretly Batman, having chosen his path after witnessing a mugger murder his parents when he was a child. During the event, Bruce becomes infuriated with Vale, but, sorry, infatuated with Vale, but interrupts their meeting to secretly pursue Gordon, which, when he leaves on police business. Um, yeah, I will say, these 1990s Batmans, they are super hyper-sexualized in ways that I couldn't even imagine until you watch uh the catwoman um and what is it keaton performance on screen the michelle pfeiffer and keaton i believe were dating at the time that they were um or around that time that they were on screen as batman and catwoman i couldn't imagine how many people watched this and were like all right we're going home doing some crazy bdsm shit i'm being batman you're being catwoman we're gonna get this shit on <laughs> like it is fucking hot like i'm not gonna lie she she michelle pfeiffer is so good in that movie i just i almost want to just talk about that one because of <laughs> how much uh of a performance it is um not to say anything about Miss Vicky Vale, but it's just like the charisma. You can just feel it just bouncing, dripping off the screen. Um, and of course, we've got to see how Bruce Wayne's parents are killed and die again. Um, several times in this movie, by the way. Oh, the pearls. Grissom sends his sociopathic second-in-command Jack Naper to raid Axis Chemicals. To retrieve incriminating evidence, though it is a cover to have Naper murdered for sleeping with his mistress, Alicia Hunt. Although corrupt police lieutenant Max Eckhart exchanges, sorry, arranges the hit on Naper by conducting an unauthorized police operation, Gordon arrives, takes command, and orders officers to capture Napier alive. As a potential witness, Batman also arrives to catch Na- Napper, Napier, who kills Eckhart as revenge for double crossing him. During a scuffle with Batman, Napier topples off a catwalk and falls into a vat of acidic chemicals. Although presumed dead, Napier survives with various disfigurements, including chalk white skin and emerald green hair and nails. It is he undergoes surgery from a surgeon to repair the damage, but ends up with a vicious grin. <laughs> and it is 
kind of ridiculous and scary at the same time what's going on with this they do have some uh you know this weird almost like russian uh doctor working on him and stuff like that and he's you know jack's mad and stuff like that and of course he's gotta kill the guy you know you know he's back baby um and (laughs) this purple suit i i mean by watching it you should just have an idea that he's just going full ridiculous at this point. Uh, so, um, so yeah, he ends up with a uh, vicious grin driving him dr- driven insane by his new appearance. Napper Napier now calls himself the Joker. He kills Grissom at his estate, massacres Grissom's associates and take over his operations. Um, I can't remember if he kills that surgeon or not. Um, but yeah, I do feel like the lines uh, that they give um, Jack Nicholson are pretty good, but I don't think they're as spot on as what they write for uh, Batman Returns. But he's such an a A list actor. I just feel like why not? You know, he can. He could say anything. It would be amazing. Batman reaches a way to stop the Joker from terrorizing Gotham with hygiene product, prod, hygiene products laced with Simlex, a deadly chemical. Smilex, sorry, a deadly chemical which causes victims to uh, to literally die laughing with some maniacal grin as the Joker. And there's like commercials for this at one point where the Joker is infiltrating the grocery stores and stuff like that with the Smilex. And they're showing like models showing up dead and they're with crazy grins and whatnot. Like that's some scary shit right there. Like that's some legitly scary shit. Almost like a laughing gas that just makes you just laugh until you die. Um So the Joker soon becomes obsessed with Vicky and lures her to Gotham's Museum of Art, where his henchmen destroy the works of art within, off to this really funky, fresh beat um, provided by Prince. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people might have, um, you know, have a lot to say about the, the Prince of it all, um, I don't have that song in front of me right now. I'm, I'll see if I can find it as I'm, I'm scanning through it. Um, but still, it felt like they just needed to pump in some 1980s uh, needle drops so that it would make it a lot more, I guess, timely or make people relate to it more. I'm not really sure what the deal was, but the Joker is fucking boogieing and just... Everyone's just dancing in the streets, dancing in the museums, fucking up all the art. I was like, okay. Um, all right. Um, let me see what else we got. All right. So he lures her to the Gotham Museum of Art where his henchmen destroy works of art within. Batman arrives and rescues Vicky before taking her to his Batcave, providing um, 
with all of his research on providing her with all of his research on Smilex that will allow the city's residents to escape the toxin. And I got to say this little, the fighting of this um, is a little bit funny and he's, he just kind of feels like Batman just drops in and just says, Psh, and has like the, you know, the, the, the bat ring or something like that. What is it called? The bat hook or whatever. And I think the Joker, or Jack Nicholson's like, damn, I got to get me one of those. <laughs> it was like, Oh shit. Uh, that's some funny shit. Um, but anyways, uh, the, the, the conflicted with love for her, Bruce visits her apartment, intending to reveal his secret identity only for the Joker to interrupt the meeting. The Joker confronts Bruce with the question, have you ever danced with the devil and the pale moonlight? Um, which the latter recalls being used by the mugger who killed his parents. Holy Santa Claus. The, Joker then shoots Bruce, but he survives thanks to a serving ashtray underneath. Sorry, serving tray hidden. Sorry, I said her ashtray. Thanks to a serving tray underneath his shirt and escapes while the Joker is distracted. And again, he's not in suit at this point. He is just Bruce Wayne showing up at Vicki Vale's place like, hey, what up, girl? And then the Joker's like, aha! And yeah, it's like, god dang, I didn't know he was going to shoot him like that. Um, but it's a good thing he had the uh, serving tray under his shirt, so he was all good. Um, and he escapes while the Joker is distracted. At the Batcave, Bruce reminisces on his parents' murder <clears throat> and realizes that the Joker was their killer. Vicky is taken to the Batcave by Bruce's butler, Alfred, who has been co uh, coaxing their relationship between the pair to bring out... Sorry, coercing their relationship between the two to bring out Bruce's human side... Alfred's always trying to help Bruce get it in. I will say that, you know, he's normally he's normally a dog like that. He's trying to help his man. Um and I got to say I don't recall what what is the da, 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 da. is it Robert Wall is is Robert Wall the no it's not. Uh da, 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 da. Michael Go. Yeah, okay. I think it's Michael Go. Um or is it Goff? Michael Goff um, plays the uh, butler Alfred, and I just cannot get enough of this character. He is so fucking, uh, he's funny, he's charismatic, he's like the grandpa slash father figure that you always need and want to be there on your side, and I can't say enough good things about him. And he's uh, apparently a good wingman, just too. After exposing his secret to... Vicky Bruce reveals he cannot focus on their relationship with the Joker and on with the Joker on the loose and departs to deploy the Axis plant used to create Smilex. Meanwhile, the Joker lures Gotham City to a parade with the promise of free money in order to dose them with Smilex gas held within a giant parade of balloons and funky fresh Prince music. Batman foils his plan by using his bat wing to remove the balloons, but the Joker shoots it down. There's a lot of like imagery from the Dark Knight that I didn't realize was in this as well, um, or vice versa. 
Um, Dark Knight take, took a little bit from this. The Batwing crashes in front of the cathedral and the Joker takes Vicky hostage within it. Batman pursues the pursues pursues the Joker to the top of the cathedral and in the ensuing fight he reveals that he knows Naper killed his parents and thus indirectly created Batman before the latter created the Joker leading the Joker to realize Batman is Bruce the Joker eventually pulls Batman and Vicky over the balcony of the cathedral, which is kind of ridiculous again, um, leaving them hanging while he attempts to escape by calling in a helicopter piloted by his goons, who throw down a ladder for him to climb. However, Batman uses a grappling hook to attach the Joker's leg to a gargoyle, <laughs> which classic gargoyle, or bat gargoyle, <laughs> um, bat goyle. Uh, unable to bear its Im immense weight, the Joker is just holding on like ever sound on the pale blue. <laughs> the Joker falls to his death while Batman and Vicky make it to safety. Sometime later, Gordon announces that the police have arrested all of the Joker's men and unveils, uh, sorry, unveils the bat signal. Dent reads a note from Batman promising that he will defend Gotham should defend, should crime strike again and ask them to use the bat signal to summon Wayne in times of need. Alfred takes Vicky to Wayne Manor, explaining that Bruce will be a little late. She responds that she is not surprised as Batman looks at the signal's projection from a rooftop, standing watch over the city. And that, my friends, is Batman 89, directed by Tim Burton. Let me know what you thought about the film. Let me know what you thought about the review. Let me know if I can do anything to, you know, keep uh, interesting podcasts flowing and coming down the pipe. You already know what to do. You already know what to say. Um, anything else that uh let me see some design information. I want to see if I can go to. Da, da, da. Sometimes IMDb has some pretty cool information on their facts. The good thing is that it's all in one place, so I don't have to search a whole bunch. So let me give you a couple cool facts about Batman '89. Okay, so. Michael Keaton was unable to hear while wearing the bat suit. Wow, really. He said that his claustrophobia helped him get into the proper mood to play Batman. It made me go inward, and that's how I wanted the character to be anyway, to be withdrawn. Um, let me see. According to Michael Keaton, his Batman, sorry, his background in comedy proved useful in playing Batman because it gave him instincts on how to shape scenes and build dimension into his character. For example, on the scene where Vicky and Bruce are having dinner, Keaton suggested that they they be seated far apart at a very long table in his line of dialogue. I don't think I've been in this room before. Um, yeah, it's kind of like dry humor that's just kind of obviously hilarious as well. In another example, he contributed the idea of Bruce hanging like a bat after Vicky sleeping with Vicky. It makes all the other stuff even weirder and darker because you're thinking this guy's off. Um which is kind of right and 
I can't remember if she knows he's Batman at that point. I don't think she knows. Um, hmm. This movie was released the year of the character's 50th anniversary. Well. Don Johnson, Dale Midkiff, and William Peterson were considered for uh, Harvey Dent. Billy Dee Williams took the role with the expectation that he would be brought back to play Two-Face and reportedly had contract clause added reserved for the, uh, reserving the role for him. During casting for Batman Forever 1995, Warner Brothers decided they preferred Tommy Lee Jones and brought bought out Williams' contract. Williams voiced the character in the Lego Batman movie 2017. That would have been a very different uh, performance. Tommy Lee Jones was an interesting Two-Face in that movie, but I'm, I would have liked to have seen a Billy D. Williams just as a Two-Face, just to kind of see what would have, what would have been. Um, either both of them are interesting to put in that. I like even watching Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face. I almost still can't believe it. I feel like Tommy Lee Jones having fun just doesn't make sense in my head. But it I, ridiculousness is it definitely feels like is what was going on, especially with uh, Jim Carrey just running around like a maniac. Um, let me see if I can go to a, a lower, more exclusive. I bet. The design of Gotham City is based on the work of uh, architects Antoni God, uh, Otto Wagner, and Shia Tatsumusi, and Louis H. Sullivan. In particular, the Gotham Cathedral mirrored in the works of Gaudi and uh, Flu Flugaham Museum exterior was directly based upon Nishna Dental Clinic. What? The Nishna Dental Clinic which Takamutsu designed. Well, that was oddly specific. Um, yeah, I got to say, I really like the use of miniatures and the cinematography in this. Uh, I didn't realize that Tim Burton was all about miniatures until I watched this movie. I think that it came to my attention. I was like, oh, shit. He, they just build a tiny city, and they're using special lenses and cameras to kind of film in between and see what's going on. I don't think that Joel Schumacher's work in the latter two Batman kind of, uh, I don't know if they go well with the early two Batman. So um, with regards of being able to spot if that's a miniature or not, I'm like, uh, that's a toy car, yo. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyways, thank you for listening, watching Look It All Podcast, Batman 1989. Take it easy. I'm Batman.